Welcome to Saturday Night at the Movies, the podcast that celebrates classic, current, and cult films. I'm your host, Steve Rubin. Our producer is Ben Shrewsbury. Our signature theme was composed by Greg Learhoff. Here it's always Saturday night. And tonight our guest is award-winning fiction and nonfiction writer, screenwriter, filmmaker, art director, editor, publisher, and film TV historian, Gary Girardi who not only co-wrote the celebrated cult horror hit Pumpkinhead and penned the fan-favorite trade paperback Fantastic Television, but for many years was a top writer at the Topps Trading Card Company. Welcome, Gary. Hello there. I'm delighted to be here. <laughs> well, you have so many uh, things that you've done, I don't know quite where to begin. But... You know, when I heard you go through that rundown, I said, okay, is it a portrait of a man who couldn't make up his mind what he wanted to do with his life? Uh, <laughs> except the common denominator and all that, I was very, very lucky. It was all creative work. So I was able to make a living and survive and keep my, myself going all these years, always doing something creative one way or another. Very lucky. So I'm pleased about so, that. So the listeners of the show have no, known me uh, for a while now. This is actually our 50th podcast, which is exciting. Hey. As a lot of my early influences came from the fact that I grew up across the street from a movie theater. And Saturday mornings back in the 50s and 60s basically was a, a double feature, usually science fiction and horror. And mm. the, 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 the cartoon, if you were lucky... What were some of you? What were some of your early influences as a creative writer? Well, I'll just pick on pick up on what you just said. Uh, I come from Brooklyn, yay Brooklyn! And in Brooklyn, in the uh, late fifties, early sixties, and even beyond that, uh, was like a, a movie theater town. Okay, we had movie theaters every other block. So, and it made sense because my family. We didn't drive, you know, you live in Brooklyn, New York, you don't necessarily drive. And so within walking distance were all these great movie theaters. Uh, and not only was I going to see the great movies that were coming out in the early 60s, like, you know, Gorgo or, you know, Mysterious Island, whatever. Uh, but then, like you just mentioned, there were movie theaters that would have Saturday matinees where they would dig up stuff from the 50s, which was really only just a few years before that. Uh, and run these like double features on Saturday. And then when the evening went on, they went to their main features. But we kids had the benefit of seeing all these great monster movies years before they even came on TV. So yeah, that was a big influence for me was seeing all this stuff, you know, in the local theaters. What was your earliest memory of one of those movies that had an effect on you? Probably the earliest movie I could remember seeing was Journey to the Center of the Earth in 1959. Okay, and that was a big deal because that was a that was a more respectable science fiction movie. It had real stars in it. It had James Mason and Pat Boone and Gertrude the Duck and whatever. Uh, and so that that I went to see with both of my parents, and that was kind of a big deal. We all went to see it. Uh, and the scene that impressed me the most were all the Demetronons flopping out of the caves, like about 10 million of them uh, going after our, our cast of characters. So that was the earliest movie, I guess I could remember, 59. Right after that, it seemed like just a few months after that, uh, the time machine came along. 
And that was also respectable. And that's also one that my, I went to see with my parents. Uh, so those are, you know, those are, I guess House on Haunted Hill would be a classic example of something I saw, you know, my friends uh, at a Saturday matinee around that. That was, I guess, when I was 59 also, yeah, from that same period. Oh, yeah. Well, you you were a lot braver than I was because I was the original Frady cat when it came to science for horror movies. I oh I could sit through the day the earth stood still and the blob and forbidden <laughs> planet. But when it came to horrors of the black museum or anything that <laughs> involves things that go that creep you around in the night, I just I sat in the lobby. I had to gradually become more courageous uh wow i never would have suspected that i would have thought you were a monster kid from day one. Oh, yeah no, no i <laughs> i uh <laughs> i did not read classic monsters you know i didn't or excuse me famous, famous monsters. monsters i can't even pronounce yeah, the title right about that. <laughs> no so you uh did you did you yes start i writing? did i was a famous monsters oh. kid i had a cousin okay. who also lived in the same house i grew up with it was a family house and uh, he was three years older than me and he was the one that introduced me to famous monsters. And as a kid, I was more interested in dinosaurs. You know, we lived not far from the Museum of Natural. Well, we lived in Brooklyn, so you get on a subway and find yourself at the American Museum of Natural History in no time. And I love seeing the skeletons, the dinosaurs and all that. So I had a very healthy, straightforward interest in the scientific side of dinosaurs. It was my crazy cousin who began to introduce me to Godzilla and to that other side of it. And then of course, all the other horror movies kind of flooded in because what they all had in common was that there was a fantastic element in all of that. So uh, my mother was very pleased when I, when I had my model kits of, of real dinosaurs and that kind of stuff. When I started getting into Bela Lugosi, she's going, hmm, all right, well, okay, what the heck. <laughs> well, they, they came out with those wonderful kits at that time. I think it was Aurora came out with the famous monster kits. Yeah, here, here was the here was my my trajectory pretty much says it all. Uh, in 1959, I remember that's a key year for me. Obviously, I'm talking about the movies I saw back then. But I can, I can remember under the Christmas tree in 1959, uh, having the Marx dinosaurs in 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 the blister card. You know, where there are all those little plastic things, you know, and the Marx dinosaurs are little plastic figures of dinosaurs, you know. And then in the back of the tree, like my mom hid it, my parents both sort of said, oh, let them discover this a couple of moments later, was a great plastic model kit where you could build the skeleton of the Tyrannosaurus. It looks exactly like it did at the Museum of Natural History. So this is what predated, of course, my poor dad had to put the thing together, but this is what predated the Aurora plastic monster kits, which came out around, I guess, 62, something around that. And that was a whole new world for me too. By then I was really into the monster thing. And those plastic model kits from Aurora and the famous monsters experience kind of started what we, we considered to be an early 60s monster boom, okay? Which reached its peak, I guess, 63, 64, you know, the outer limits came into existence they wanted a monster every like monsters were everywhere and then you had the monsters the adams family a year so it reached i think calvin beck the editor of castle of frankenstein magazine which was the competition for famous monsters actually declared 1964 to be the year of the monster so that's what it kind of reached fever pitch uh 
but yeah, God, I had all those, you know, the creature model kit and the wolf man. And I had several of them because, you know, you paint them and then you kind of mess them up and then you get another one and try to do it better. Sure. Sure. And of course you were. Also and they only cost a buck each. I mean, <laughs> a dollar for a complete thing. Could you imagine? Ay, ay, ay. <laughs> and of course you were reading a lot of comic books too, I'm sure. Yeah, of course, you know, uh, being more of a monster kid than a superhero kid, most of the comics that I read, I mean, obviously, my eyes first drifted toward famous monsters and the other film monster magazines, because that was a little closer to my world. But you had all the comic books there, too. And while most of my friends were collecting, you know, Batman and Justice League or whatever they were doing, I was collecting Gorgo comics, which was a Gorgo. They did a, an ongoing comic book. Charlton Comics uh, did Gorgo, did Conga. Of course, they had the, the great Steve Ditko, the great artist, illustrating them. I didn't know at the time. To me, it just was cool-looking stuff. So the comics I bought at first were monster-oriented. And in terms of Marvel, I remember being devoted to amazing adult fantasy, which was one of Marvel's monster horror sci-fi anthology comic books and they had nifty stories really cool it was kind of like twilight zone ideas twist endings or outer limits and great monsters well that's the comic book that as we know evolved into spider-man uh, amazing adult fantasy suddenly became amazing spider-man and at first i'm going oh what happened to my great twilight zone story got another damn superhero right but then i did become a fan of Spider-Man. I, I started reading it because it was a continuation of what I've been reading. I said, this is actually good. And, and the villains he fights are like creature villains, like the lizard. And you know, so I started getting into that. That was my entree into the Marvel world. I started reading Doctor Strange, you know. And again, this stuff was Lovecraftian. It was very interesting. It was, it was so much better than the kind of co superhero comics I'd been reading. So that was that. That's pretty much my my comic book history there. Now you were a university student, I would assume. Uh, a university student in in what sense? You mean I went to college? In other words, did, did you go to university? Yeah, I mean, I, I I went to the High School of Art and Design in New York City, uh, and I went to Kingsborough Community College. A couple of years, my grades weren't the greatest, and I just kept going up the ladder. I wound up actually even showing movies and teaching to some degree at the new school, which was crazy because all I had was an AA degree at that point. Uh, but I had a film collection, you know, we, we were, that's a whole other side of us, you know, in this world of video and uh, back in the sixties and seventies, the only way you could own a movie is if you could find a 16 millimeter print that, you know, fan and film collectors were into and you would get it through, you know, all these kind of, you know, weird ways it wasn't sold to the public outright uh so i was heavily into collecting uh, films i had to own these movies because they had possessed me all these years and you needed to be able to have them dance to your tune whenever you wanted to see them whenever you wanted to review them i mean today everybody takes that for granted but if you loved a movie you'd have to wait six months maybe for when it was going to be on tv again and even then, you'd have to hope it wasn't cut. And of course, the way it was presented, if it was CinemaScope, forget it. It's pan and scan, 16 millimeter on television. Do, so, you, remember, do you remember the first movie that you bought? Yes. Um, the, the first movie I ever, the feature, first feature movie I ever had in 16 millimeter was Them. Okay, great, oh. great size. The second one 
was this island Earth, which um, was a Technicolor print, which I still own to this day. And that print was so incredible. Well, Technicolor prints were done in a different way than normal film prints were. It was like a printing press process. So each one of them was kind of incredible. Uh, and we would always, we collectors would always want to get the Technicolor print version of whatever movie we wanted if it was made in technical, like War of the Worlds, because the colors were luminous and they never faded. Uh, so that was, as a 16-millimeter collector, Technicolor was the way to go. Well, I also find interesting that your first film purchase was Them, which was the first article I did for Cine Fantastique. I remember my... that article. Very well done. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. So what, what, would you, what would you say was your first professional gig when you started to actually make money from your writing? Oh, okay. Well, this is, this is why I'm almost a cartoon caricature of, of, of myself. Because my first professional bit of writing, I'm still a kid, just in school, going to college, right? Was for the Monster Times. Okay, which was a famous monsters-like monster magazine but it was done as you can see a newspaper tabloid kind of form and we're, we're uh, audio only so we're going to have to tell them what's oh, on the okay cover. okay yeah we, well you could describe it here we got a, it's a newspaper it's kind of like rolling stone format an old newspaper style uh and it's got a great picture on the front of the creature from the black lagoon carrying julie adams and it says that this the, the main feature lagoon creature confesses so this is a this is a, a story worth telling because here I was, a kid who took my monster movies seriously. So uh, I, I impressed the people at the Monster Times with my knowledge. And they said, okay, you're a kid, but we'll, we'll, we'll give you a shot. So I wanted to write a very scholarly, serious article about the creature movies. right? Because that was kind of where things were going. Uh, uh, fantastique, And there were other like highbrow fanzines that were now treating these things with respect. And that was our whole thing. It's like for years, we kind of goofed on them, but no, this is important stuff. So I wanted to write this very serious article. But for the Monster Times, the Monster Times inherently was a kind of cute, funny, uh, pun-ridden kind of thing. It was almost like it was, it was published by the guys that had laid out and designed the famous Monsters magazine for years, uh, Berlin Wallstein. So they wanted to carry over that folksy kind of flavor. So they said, well, no, no, Gary, we appreciate this, but we'd like something a little lighter. So working with Chuck McNaughton, who was the editor, said, why don't you love monsters? Why don't you become the creature and write uh, an autobiography? Just write it from, from the creature's point of view. And I said, well, gee, that really wasn't the tone that I was going for originally, but I'll, what the heck, I'm a young writer, I'll give it a shot. And it turned out I kind of had a flair for doing that kind of funny, quirky kind of thing. Because the article, uh, and it, was, it was ridiculous in a way, uh, but I managed, even though it was, hello, boys and girls, I, I came from the Amazon, it was all all these years before Hollywood discovered me. And I, mean, I think I said something like, well, for the first 250 million years of my life, things were pretty dull. That's kind of crazy stuff. Uh, but the article was a huge, huge hit. I also managed to put valuable information within the context of all the silliness and the folksiness and all of that. So that was such a hit that they decided to make that a regular feature. So pretty soon, 
more and more monsters were were telling their their stories, and I had to, I wound up doing. I don't remember now. Gorgo speaks. I don't know. It was all these different things that became a big deal. And finally, they hired me to do Godzilla on a monthly basis. And Godzilla got a monthly column in the Monster Times, the Big G. So it made perfect sense that Gary Gerani would be the Big G. Uh, so I got to do this on a regular basis. So I'm very proud, I guess, in a weird way, that what I did for the Monster Times kind of helped to establish their whole persona for better or worse. <laughs> so that was my first professional job. My work on that uh, got noticed by Topps. Now, now Topps was a Brooklyn company. I was a Brooklyn boy, okay? And for years and years and years, uh, Topps was kind of legendary. Uh, it was our company, our funky little company, right? We, kids who came from Brooklyn. So uh, they hired me to uh, write uh, the gags for Creature Features, which was another series of trading cards in the grand tradition of the trading cards that we all grew up with, which is you had a black and white photo of Frankenstein or the Wolfman or whatever, and then a goofy caption on the bottom. You'd have a Frankenstein monster there and it'd be, hi, I'm the new babysitter, that kind of thing. So because I was so humorous with monsters with the creature, I was hired to do that. And that began a, a professional creative relationship with Tops that lasted half a century. Uh, I, I wound up creating and writing and editing hundreds and hundreds of products for them. Uh, just about all the trading card sets based on movies and TV uh, shows, all the Star Wars that, you know, I created Wide Vision, which was a longer than usual trading card. So this was a, um, a very, very beneficial relationship. And the other great thing about Topps is that they didn't interfere with my other creative ambitions. Uh, yeah, I want to write a book. Not a problem. You can stay on the panel. Yeah, I, I, I want to write a movie. Okay. Finally, when uh, I eventually moved to California, which I kind of had to do in terms of doing more movie work, I even took Tops with me. I became Tops West. Uh, so that relationship was very, very fruitful. And uh, so, yeah, yeah, I got my now, job at the Monster Times, right? <laughs> now, Tops, most people know Tops from baseball cards, but uh i guess uh was did you start to do their non-baseball cards or had they already started with those yeah yeah yeah, yeah. tops kind of had a split personality because on the one hand uh they're the all-american baseball card wholesome you know that kind of thing but the entertainment division the non-sports division new product development is what we called ourselves we're the ones who came up with all the really fun quirky crazy things that kids love uh, the wacky packages, the garbage pail kids, all of those things, not to mention the movie and TV tie-in. So the entertainment division, if you will, was entirely separate from the sports department. I uh, see. We were friends. Well, you know, we, we worked with each other, but basically they had their projects and we had ours. Now, I remember, I don't think this was a Topps product because I remember while I was early collecting baseball cards, there was also a Civil War series. Yeah. But that was that not came out earlier. That was that was before my time. Uh, I started with them. What was it? 72, 73. Uh, but in the 60s, I was collecting the cards just like you and everybody else was. I collected the Mars Attacks cards when they came out. And was it 62? OK. Uh, and then a year or so later, then Topps put out their their version of the Outer Limits cards. And there'd always be the monster cards and all these other things that that would be going on. But Mars Attacks. 
uh, had a tremendous impact on me. And one of the first things I tried to do when I was hired at Tops was to try to bring that back. And Lem Brown showed me the, the sad truth that, you know, the numbers on Mars attacks were very low. It became a cult item after the fact, but initially kids just didn't know what to make of it. I loved it. I went crazy. Uh, but so that's why they didn't want to finance another science fiction series. I, I pitched them something called the Colossals, which was kind of my ripoff of HP Love Pair. It was like a series of trading cards with these giant tentacled monstrosities from other dimensions, destroying buildings, all this kind of one. It was the Martians, but instead of the Martians, they were these Lovecraftian creatures. Um, first of all, Tops didn't even understand Lovecraft. They said, what do you mean? You're combining the supernatural with science fiction? Those are two different things. Uh, not really. They're pretty much the same if you think it out. Uh, but then ultimately they just said, it won't sell. The cost of, of doing 50 paintings, of commissioning 50 beautiful paintings, that means it's a very high budget project. It's got to have a built-in audience. Uh, over the years, the humor items like the garbage pail kids or the, or the uh, you know, that kind of thing, wacky package, would sell very well on this level. But whenever Tops would try a science fiction thing or something off that, it, it, it just didn't work. So I fought no. that for years and years and years. I wanted to do something like this. Uh, the only time I finally got around to it was in the 80s with Dinosaurs Attack, uh, which was finally my version of Mars Attacks, because dinosaurs were making a comeback in the 80s with Barney and all this. And Top said, oh, OK. You know, and they were open to the idea of doing a Mars Attacks with dinosaurs. So I finally got my chance to, to you know, art. Who was, who was your artist? A set like that, yeah. Who was your artist? Oh, we used uh, a few different people in the in the original card set. Uh, Chet Darmstetter, uh, underground artist who was also known as Exno, did the finished paintings. The way I worked at it was I would do a uh, a pencil drawing, kind of a sketch, a storyboard. Then Herb Trimpey, who was the great uh, uh, comic book artist who did G.I. Joe and did all these other kinds of stuff, which had soldiers and had all that kind of stuff. He did the tight pencil. So I, I, this was the great thing. I thought I was going to be an artist when I was younger, went to the high school of art and design. Uh, and then I got nervous because I saw people who had so much more talent than I did. I said, oh, boy. And then I started selling my writing. So I said, OK, here's, here's another way to get into this. But then at Tops, I kind of became an art director being in charge of these projects. So I was able to hire these incredible artists to fulfill the, the visions that I had. Not only her, but, you know, we're talking about Drew Struzer. No, the most incredible people wound up doing illustrations for Tops because uh, we did so many art sets, whether they were based on Star Wars or, or original ideas. And we had all access to all these incredible illustrators. Uh, so... It was weird. By proxy, I got to sort of do it. I lived through their talent and saw all these interesting things come to life. Now, I'm curious about Star Wars. I'm, hmm. my, my assumption is, is that Tops came in after the movie was released. I would not assume that they got the license early. Uh, yes and no. Uh, more no than yes. We were approached uh, uh, by 20th Century Fox, probably by Mark Pevers, who was the head of licensing at that point. And they sent over this beautiful book of quality printed black and white stills from the film. And I would go, ooh, Len, look at this, you know, wow. You know, we were all excited and we never saw anything quite like that. And, uh, but, but here's the, here's the rub here. 
a year before that, Lem Brown, who was also, Lem Brown was the guy that hired me. He's, we're like brothers, you know, we're into the same stuff. And we had gone to the president of Topps, Arthur Sharon, and, and convinced him to do a trading card set on Star Trek. Because if you'll recall, in the mid-70s, Star Trek had this tremendous resurgence because of how well it had done in syndication. All of a sudden, for those years on the networks, nobody gave it in syndication. It was this powerhouse. So we approached Arthur and said, look, you know, why don't we do a quality set on Star Trek and, you know, tap into that? So we said, all right, give it a shot. Well, we bombed. Uh, and my reasoning for that, ultimately, you always come up with reason, uh, was that at that particular point in time, it was a learning curve for all of us. The Star Trek skewed a little older. It was a little older, a little hipper. Our main audience still was classic kids. And even though they were, you know, a little bit into Mr. Spock and all that, it hadn't really gotten down. Then Star Wars comes along. And we're trying to tell Arthur, yeah, but Arthur, this one was designed exactly for our audience. It's like a Walt Disney movie. It's almost like The Wizard of Oz. You got a Tin Man, you got a furry guy. I mean, it's purely for our audience. And so Tops got interested. There was a little uh, uh, problem because we didn't buy it instantly. Uh, we, we did eventually get around to it, but at that point, Kenner, who had their own card company, had gotten involved with Star Wars, so there was a little bit of a tug of war. But ultimately, we got it, and I was like, oh, fantastic, we got it. And my whole life changed totally at Topps because that was the biggest thing they ever had, I mean, in terms of a licensed product. I mean, it was, it was unbelievable. And even though I was respected, they let me do my creative thing, and they were pleased with me. I was still kind of, you know, just the kid there. And now all of a sudden I was in charge of the, the biggest thing they ever had. And I was flying to California every couple of weeks to get more pictures. That was another thing back then. You couldn't blow picture, pictures up off of, there were, there were no videos. There were, so we were completely at the mercy of whatever their unit photography was or whatever they had prepared. And nobody needed more pictures than tops because that's all we were was pictures. Series after series after series. Uh, so yeah, I was constantly going out there, desperately trying to get new material. We went, I think, to like five or six series with our original Star Wars, the, the first movie. Sure, and I'm sure was, the franchise, which was a record. Yeah, you know. I'm sure the franchise continued with the subsequent films as well. Yeah, what we did back then was very interesting. We just put out sets and related goodies uh, connected to the movie. So the first movie comes out. And we have cards, I don't even know, we had posters, we had who knows whoever else, uh, candy containers, you know, like shaped like the, the, the characters, filled with candy, that kind of thing. Uh, but we didn't do things in between that. Then it was getting ready for Empire, okay? And then everything was Empire, again, a million products connected to it. And then was Return of the Jedi. So uh, it was only years later that we realized we can constantly create new Star Wars sets just using our imagination with this, the world they've created. And that's ultimately what, that's what we started doing. Um, I created, what was it, the Star Wars Galaxy. I named it Galaxy. I said, they were gonna call it Star Wars Universe at first. And I said, no, 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 that's the Marvel Universe. Galaxy is more of a Star Wars word. So we created the term Star Wars Galaxy. And that became uh, several series of art sets. Where again, remember what I'm saying, working with these great artists 
I would go to the artist and say, hey, you want to interpret your favorite Star Wars character or, or, or come up with some new ideas related? And the artists love that. And Lucasfilm was very open to that in the beginning. They were much more liberal when it came to us playing with their characters. I remember there was one set where we actually had like the Rancor, uh, which was the monster from was it Return of the Jedi, uh, as a one-of-a-kind mutation thing. And in the same set, we've got Jabba in his spaceships or whatever, herding all of these rancors as if it was, it was like a whole kind of animal species or whatever. So we had entirely two different origins for that character in the same set. And Lucasfilm said, okay, you know, which a few years later, they get a lot stricter about that sort of thing. So it was, it was a lot of fun, a lot of fun to do that. Well, here it is 2022. People are wondering if, people will ever go back to the movie theaters in droves like they once did. <laughs> yeah, I know. How, how does the world feel about trading cards in 2022, as far as you know? I know you're not as involved in, anymore, but... It's an interesting point. I mean, I, I'm officially retired from... from I, I mean, I get a pension. <laughs> wow. Um, but I was still creating sets and editing sets for them even after I had retired for a couple of years. When COVID finally hit uh, big time, um, that was my last year, that was 2020, but the company itself went through, the, the doors were closed, everybody was either fired or laid off, Every, there was a tremendous upheaval. And now the company's been bought and cut in half. It's no longer Tops. One, it's, part of it is called Tops, but it's also another company called Bazooka. Uh, I get my pensions checks from Bazooka, not from Tops. Okay, uh, so I don't. And apparently, I guess they're still doing Star Wars related stuff. But all the creative people who were who were part of that our team originally really aren't there anymore. So I guess what they're doing is probably a lot of sketch cards. Uh, I know they got a tremendous focus on the sports side of cards now. So sure. I really haven't. It's so funny you mentioned it because about a year or so ago, I said, let me let me go on Google and see what Topps is doing with their Star Wars cards today, just to see, okay, uh, who's writing them now? Are they up to the same standards of my my text? So I, I went on Google and I see some cards, whatever, and I'm reading one and I'm going, uh, all right, this is pretty good. Whatever they got kind of caught my style pretty nicely. Then I realized it was one of my cards. From like <laughs> and, and that was it. I said, enough. I'm not going to go any further. That was that was so cool. I'm not even going to look anymore. <laughs> so I really don't know what they're up to today. Um, I know they got into digi cards, which aren't don't even really exist except in the either. You know, it's a whole. I'm other. Sorry, what, what kind of cards? Like digital cards that aren't even real that that are kind oh, of. Like, like, I, I don't uh, even NFT. know what they are. Frankly, I, I they were telling me about. It. I said, oh, that sounds interesting. And it's not for me. Now but, speaking uh, of art director jobs and posters and cards. You wrote a book in 2020 called Epic Art, The Art of Joe Smith. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, for the listeners who don't know who Joe Smith is, please tell them who Joe Smith is. Joe Smith, uh, along with another name that fans of movie posters will, will recognize, Reynold Brown, those guys were probably the two premier guys who did all the great movie posters from our youth. Okay, Joe Smith did Ben-Hur. He, he created the chiseled in stone logo, which of course then they asked him to do for every movie. I mean, again, he did Gorgo campaign, chiseled in stone letters once again. Um, but he was a great artist. Uh, I 
always loved his work. As a matter of fact, there's there's uh, I know we can't see it, but you'll, there is a Gorgo piece right back there that that he had done that is still in my collection. Uh, and we became very very good friends. I got him work in his twilight years um, at Tops. In fact, I had him do all the portraits of all the Star Wars characters in exactly the same style as he had done the Ben-Hur portraits and the King of King portraits from so many years, and the Wonderful World of the Brothers Grimm portraits, all these incredible things that he had done. Uh, I had him do uh, Star Wars characters in that style, uh, classic Hollywood style, right? And they came out great, and George Lucas bought every single one after we printed them, so that tells you something. But, well, uh, no, but he was he was a great guy, and he and I became very good friends. He didn't live very far from me. He lived within walking distance from me here in Sherman Oaks, California. So I go over there every week. He make me a cocktail. It was great. We talk about you know the good old days in Hollywood, and finally at a certain point, I said, "Joe, let me let me put this between you know two covers because we're hanging out all the time anyway." And um, so that's where so, it took a long so what, time for that book to be published. Well, I was going to say the challenges of getting the licensed poster art. Did you did you have to license each poster art or was that used for fair use? It's fair use. Yeah. And on top of that, it's fair use uh, and created by the original artist. And you're presenting this overview of his career. So, yeah, we didn't have any any problems there. I mean, it would be so crazy if they if they tried to do that. Uh, of course, uh, uh, Gary, it, it has it has been done before, right? Right. I, mean, I had problems with fantastic television years ago when when uh, the Twilight. Well, Gary, I'm curious. I'm curious in terms. Of you, I mean, you've got Joe Smith's wonderful posters. What source materials would you use for creating the panels in the book? It depended on what the material was. I mean, in, in some cases, he had his. There were some originals that we could just shoot state of the art and they'd come out great. In other cases, he had uh, transparencies and whatever of the art that he did, some of those things, the color had gone, we had to try to color correct those. So it came from all different kinds of sources. Uh, but luckily it all seems to have printed pretty well. You know, you know it's interesting how we're talking about trading cards, we're talking about movies. Uh, poster art seems to have gone through a rather fallow period. I mean, the you talk about the posters for Ben, uh, excuse me, for Ben Hur and King of Kings, Star Wars. You don't. It's so funny because people, people don't hear about movies anymore by walking by the theater and looking <laughs> at the poster and the becoming attractions window. It's mostly online now. So poster art's gone through a transformation. Do you still see good movie posters? I certainly don't see many. Well, you know, it, it, this is a very interesting point. And when I put out the, uh, did the Joe Smith book, uh, I asked Drew Struzan to write the introduction. And Drew, uh, we got into this. I want you to talk about, let's get into this. What has happened now where the great movie posters that we love just are really aren't being done. Um, and we got into that whole thing. And it really comes down to the main thing is your culture changes. Okay, back then the culture uh, that we grew up in was not as sophisticated and was more romantic. They were more in touch with, it's just like the way music 
in movies was more romantic. And now it's very ironic and counterpointy and whatever. Same thing with posters. They were beauty, beauty for the, the sake of beauty. And, and that would pull people in. But then as, as the culture changed and people became more cynical, they'd even turn against some of the beautiful movie posters and say, what a con job. I don't need to see all, see this, see that, see that. We're not, this, this is crap. You go see the movie, you, you don't see any of those things. Just put the, the, the photo of the star. I want to know who's in it or whatever. So for a while, you know, all we got was, you know, the actor's face, <laughs> you know, basic kind of stuff. So I think that romantic, almost like circus poster, you know, it, 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 they weren't sophisticated. They, they went right to your gut in terms of entertainment, the way you, you know, if you went to a circus, right at you. Uh, and that was part of the pleasure. You would go to a movie, first you'd get the pleasure of the poster, which was its own work of art that you could lose yourself in very often better than the movie. And then of course, then you go see the movie. Um, today, it's a very cynical, I don't have to, we have so many people who can say that, we're very cynical, uh, we're kind of in this, you know, smarmy kind of like, mm, cynical, show me, I don't believe it. Mm, mm. So you know, the, uh, the, the romance of the past, the things we love, you know, somebody asked me, how we don't have music scores like we use, and it's the same thing. Well, the most egregious, you know, you just mentioned the idea of abandoning classic poster art and replacing with a face. I think the most egregious example of that was when Fox released the first Highlander with Christopher Lambert. Yeah, you're right. It was just the head. All right? there was on the poster was his sweating face with no evocativeness <laughs> at all. And I, I, I'll tell you, that didn't work at all. And I don't think the movie did very well. But I think Lucas and Spielberg have been more a fan of classic movies. And it did help that, that their films inherently were retro by nature. So Indiana Jones, Star, it's like, come back to the thrilling flavors of yesteryears. The posters kind of went along with that. Um, but you know, we've, for better or worse, we've kind of evolved out of that. I mean, there is a lot of, and I was just looking around lately, it's not painted art. It's not the beautiful classical style we grew up with, but there is now more ingenuity I've noticed in, in movie advertising. It's usually, like I say, very cynical, very kind of wise ass, which is an, another thing that in your stomach, you get this little thing, say, ah, yeah. And then you go, but gee, I'm not as happy as I used to be. You know, so that all carries over in what is created today. Well, certain companies, certain companies maintain the classic Hollywood uh, the romanticism. And I would have to say Disney has always done a good job in presenting their stories. I think I just recently saw the re the sequel to Enchanted, which is called Disenchanted. Great and it's time. got some beautiful <laughs> artwork. Of course, when you have Amy Adams as your leading character, it's easy to do beautiful artwork around her. She's such a wonderful actress. Now, you obviously not only cover art, but you also cover music and you did a feature length documentary. I found it interesting that your subject was a gentleman I was not very familiar with. It was Billy Goldenberg. Mm -hmm. uh, and I believe that documentary came out this year. Yes, it did. Uh, it was uh, released as a feature length extra uh, on the Blu-ray of the UFO incident, which happened to be, uh, oh, it's a wonderful TV movie with James Earl Jones, Estelle Parsons, and it happened to be a film that Billy scored. Uh, so I was contacted to do the commentary for that film. And that's when I said, Hey, listen, 
why don't we put my documentary on the same disc? It appeals to the same audience. Oh my God, that's a great idea. So that's how it got out into the world. And I, I was, Billy Goldenberg had been my favorite composer when I first discovered him in 1969. His very first TV movie was a supernatural film called Fear No Evil with Louis Jourdain, had to do with a haunted mirror. And that was the very first, you know, feature film he ever scored. And I remember watching it on television and going, wow, who did the music for this? It wasn't one of the usual guys, you know, because Universal had a lot of the, you know, regular classic composers. Even Bernard Herrmann was still doing stuff for them in the late 60s. Uh, but I never heard of this guy. I mean, who the heck was Billy Goldenberg, right? Uh, and then I became addicted to his music. And, and, and I, whenever there'd be a TV film on or whatever that he did, I'd run in from the next room and have to watch it and listen to it. Um, this became such an obsession um, after a while that years later, I sought him out and we became very good friends. I, we were friends for like 25 years. It was another situation like with Joe Smith that every, since I was hanging out with him so much, going to dinner, doing all these things, I said, Billy, let me, let me do something about you. I tried to get his music released on... Uh, you know, all those those CD labels that are out that do movie scores and all that. Uh, but most of the TV movies that he did uh, were not famous. Duel is probably one of the most famous. He did all of Spielberg's television work, starting with the very first thing that Spielberg ever did, which was the Night Gallery pilot with Joan Crawford. That's Billy Goldenberg's music. So he did all of, and basically Spielberg said, okay, we're going up the ladder together. Uh, and they did all these TV films, the Columbo uh, episode, all this kind of incredible stuff that they did. Uh, but then what happened was <laughs> Sugarland Express, uh, 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 which was Bill, uh, which was uh, Steven Spielberg's first theatrical movie. Billy was so busy with television that he didn't do it. And then John Williams got into the picture, and that was the end of that. Uh, we cover this in the documentary, uh, where my God, you you were going up that ladder you could have been john williams but what he was was so brilliant i mean this guy was 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 the key musical director in the elvis comeback specials responsible largely for elvis's comeback work with uh, the early career of barbara streisand he was a big deal on broadway in addition to doing the hollywood films and, and television work so he was a very very accomplished wonderful musician uh, composer and, you know, so this documentary was really a labor of love. Uh, sure. I just wanted to get that out. And, you know, that was... That no, was that's one, wonderful because it's, it's filmmakers like yourself who come to the rescue of these artists who without somebody like you yeah. could possibly be forgotten to history. And I think it's so important. Our mutual friend, Steve Mitchell, did the same thing for Larry Cohen. You know, Larry Cohen right, is not, right. a, not a household name in terms of <laughs> Right, right. <laughs> but the thing is, yeah, if you appreciate what these guys are about and if their work affected you, this is a way of giving something back. You know, both of these, when I think about the Joe Smith and Billy Goldenberg, their creative work got me out of some big depressions during the course of my life. I could, you could, as you know, you could turn to these things and, and, and they'll make you feel better. So this was a way I tried to hit both of these guys by saying, you don't know how far your reach was. You did these great jobs that you were hired to do. You certainly satisfied the movie or whatever you were doing. But beyond that, 
you were you were interesting people like me. You were getting to people who just loved your music way beyond what your original uh, purpose in doing a particular score might be. So I made them aware that their reach was so much greater, and that made them feel great. Because they're saying, "Your yeah, God, you're right." If someone like you is so crazy over over this stuff, that means there must be others like you out there. And I really did reach even beyond what my job was originally. I, I, mm -hmm. I, I Back in the day, record companies would put out a compilation of, of favorite scores of a certain composer. I, I don't recall Billy getting that compilation disc. I, I tried to put them together. <laughs> I mean, during that whole period. Oh, I mean, one of the greatest things is, well, when I first met Billy, it's so ridiculous. The whole idea was I wanted his music. Yeah, I'd love to meet him and hang out with him, but you couldn't get copies of, of all the stuff. So I figured if I find the composer, he's likely to have copies of his music. And so Billy took me to his vault, and sure enough, there were all these incredible audio tapes, all these TV films that I loved. I was like in seventh heaven. <laughs> yes. Well, you're also obviously a working screenwriter, and you were responsible for certainly one of the cult hits of the 80s in Pumpkinhead. And I know a lot of the listeners are, are, are fans of horror genre pieces. And tell us a little bit how the Pumpkinhead project came about. Well, Pumpkinhead is very interesting because uh, my late writing partner, Mark Patrick Car uh, Carducci, who was also you know, a friend from the neighborhood, uh, another crazy kindred spirit who loved all this all this stuff uh we had we were making like super eight kind of movies in in the 70s and graduated 16 millimeter and and we had created a number of stories that involved the occult and the supernatural and the demon of revenge was originally created in the 70s uh it was part of a story i think it was uh, the seven gargoyles of satan uh, and Hell Mountain was another. And we were actually making a film and I used my old Dom Post Creature from the Black Lagoon mask uh, with like kind of a sheet over it or something to represent the demon of revenge. Um, years later, okay, now time has gone by and Mark is making some headway, uh, you know, the film projects. And he said, he comes to me one night, he says, you know, I had a meeting today uh, with these producer guys and they got the rights to a poem with the name Pumpkinhead. And that poem was written by Ed Justin, who ironically, I even knew he was in the licensing business, Honest Ed Justin. Okay, he wrote this poem and these film producers bought it because they liked the name Pumpkinhead and felt that it would be a good name for a horror movie. So since they knew Mark, they spoke to him and Mark then comes to me and says, what if we hit them with our demon of revenge? And we'll call him Pumpkinhead, you know that it's a, just a legend from the, the sticks where this the, the, the story takes place, and uh, we'll just we'll just do that. So so technically, the demon of revenge was created in the seventies. Pumpkinhead didn't really happen until these producers got that name and we mated our original story to the name Pumpkinhead, and that's how Pumpkinhead was born. Now, most people would think that the creature is a guy with a pumpkin on his head, but it's nothing like that. Well, the funny thing is, we had that problem, too. We approached them and said, you know, our demon is a Lovecraftian. I mean, the creature from the Black Loom played him originally. That, that gives you an idea. 
scaly kind of creature. But if you call the thing pumpkin, isn't the audience going to want to see a literal pumpkin on a human body? So for a while, you know, you may be right. So for, for a while, we transformed him into this pumpkin man with the head of, of an actual pumpkin. And the gimmick was when Lance Henriksen or his character goes to see the old witch. Originally, it was the witch tells him, go to a graveyard, dig up a corpse and cut the head off. Bring back the headless uh, corpse. Meanwhile, she's carving out the pumpkin head, the face in an actual pumpkin. And because they, this had to do with people living by the land where you just make use of what you have, you know, you farmers would often put things together to create new uh, uh, things they could use. And so she puts the head on the body. And so the whole thing kind of fit. Uh, but then even we were never really happy. We said, well, maybe if he's called Pumpkinhead, we may have to do this, but we really wanted to go back to our Lovecraft. And Stan Winston gets involved. And it was great because, okay, you got Stan Winston. You're not going to have a, a pumpkin on a human body. You're going to have an, you want an original creature that he and his people can create for us. And so it was back to the Lovecraftian idea. And Mark and I were very happy about that. And this, of course, is the same Stan Winston that five years later is concocting dinosaurs for Steven Spielberg. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. And uh, I, I thought Stan uh, did a fabulous job with Pumpkinhead. I mean, uh, we spoke to him at length about what we wanted out of the movie. And it was very unusual. So we don't want a moist movie. Uh, when you have a story with a father losing a son, it's, oh, oh. And I said, no, no, no. We don't want to go for the pages. We want something dry. The way we thought of the Pumpkinhead story was kind of an indifferent God's overview, if you will, uh, of, of a tragedy. This is what happens out there. This is how these people handle things when they go. We'll go to the police. They have their own ways of doing it. But the whole thing is kind of like, and Stan was great for this. Stan was Stan this because Stan was like this. He was a little dry. And and as a result, it doesn't have that bathos. It doesn't have that uh, which it could have easily have had. It actually comes across as almost like a documentary overview of an event. And it's more real that way. Uh, we got very, very, very lucky because he knew what he was doing, and we had an incredible cinematographer. So as a result, you go into the witch's hut and you have these oranges and light coming through the window. Say, this is this is magnificent. Boy, did we get lucky. It's luck of the draw. You never know what's going to happen. Right? I mean, this is not a cabin movie made for a dollar ninety eight. You had a three million dollar budget and you had Stan Winston making his directing debut. That must have been very exciting for you. Did you, did you get a chance to be on the set a lot? Yeah, uh, I mean, I was still working at Tops in Brooklyn at the time uh, when we were shooting. As a matter of fact, uh, I was literally writing and creating the Dinosaurs Attack card set at the same time I was writing, doing Pumpkinhead. Uh, and Dinosaurs Attack, at the end of Dinosaurs Attack, which was my Mars Attacks, there is a demonic dinosaur who's like their evil god that the scientists also accidentally brought back into our modern times. And this thing is very Pumpkinheadian. And I'm laughing. I'm thinking, well, I created him at the same time I was doing it. So I guess that's where my head was at. Uh, but no, but getting back to Stan Winston, we were very, very lucky uh, because even though it's only $3 million, or what, that's still kind of relatively low budget. Um, when you consider that 
Stan Winston and some of these other people now, I mean, they just came off of Aliens. Stan had just shot Second Unit on Aliens. And uh, that was what we were saying. Okay, he knows how to direct. This is going to be the first movie he's ever done on his own. But look at how great all that Second Unit work is. Let's have faith that he's, he'll be a really good director. And he was for our film. Uh, but but again, you know, he came off of that and that was a big studio movie. So we wound up getting a kind of big studio movie monster in a low budget, relatively low budget film. Uh, but luckily all the artistry was there. So no one thinks of it necessarily as a low budget film. But I remember at the time thinking, man, we got, look what we've got here. You know, we were very, very fortunate. Now there have been other pumpkin head projects, but you have not been involved with those? Um, again, yes and no. My partner and I were involved in the first sequel. We're actually in the first sequel. We, we played two guys who just lost our money in a cockfight. Okay. Meanwhile, we have Brooklyn haircuts, so it was ridiculous. Uh, but and, and you barely see us. We just come and go. But, um, but no, and, and then it, we were pulled into the sequel and we said, guys, you completely ignored all the mythology that we created. Can't we write a new script for you, which will go back to the mythology everyone is expecting, but kind of like from the first movie. They wouldn't let, let us do that. So they just let us make a couple of changes here and there. So the movie was what it was. But then the Sci-Fi Channel uh, got to do them. Uh, I had approached them with a proposal called Tales of Pumpkin, which is a Pumpkinhead TV series. And the idea was every other week would be a, a, a pumpkin head demon of revenge story, and they could take place in ancient Rome. They could there was all you could do anything you want with the pumpkin head demon with revenge. But on alternate weeks, it would be another demon that represented a sin or evil of man. So we'd be able to to, to offer these new Stan Winston-like creatures in addition to having our superstar always there. So I came up, you know. Millions of really cool stories, an entire first season's worth of stories. Sci-Fi Channel was very interested. Instead, they kind of pushed me off to the side and took some of the ideas and made some of their TV movies, which have a distant connection uh, to what I had submitted. I do believe there's some kind of credit that Mark and I still get in there. Uh, sure, sure. But that's, that's what happened in that department. And they keep threatening to do now a, a remake of it. Uh, hasn't happened yet, you know. Uh, I've offered my services or as a consultant or whatever, uh, but who knows? We'll see if that happens. Now, Gary, you do commentary work as well. And I recently, you recently told me that you did the commentary for the original 1957 12 Angry Men. Yeah, yeah. What a great movie. Um, and I, I've had to spend the last few weeks just watching it over and over and over again uh in, in, in some cases when you're doing these commentaries what you say has to be more or less linked to what you're seeing on the screen uh so the, the synchronizing all your comments and all that it could be really really tough but what a great film i mean i've done a lot of commentaries good films in between films a lot of cult tv movies the stuff that i like uh, a lot of these billy goldenberg things that were really good TV movies, the night gallery pilot, stuff like that. Uh, but this 12 Angry Men is one of the greatest movies ever made, period. Uh, and it's a movie with no action. The action is all in the performance and in the ideas of what they're, they're talking about. And it's, these actors were just amazing. And the other interesting thing, and now we were talking about this a little before, 
you have the original uh, television version, the, the live TV version, which came first, okay? Then Henry Fonda saw that and said, oh, I want to produce a movie. Well, I want to play the lead. So he's the one that started the movie project going. So you have the, the, the 1957 movie. And then you have the 1997 uh, William Friedkin version, which is interesting in its own right. And it's fascinating to compare the changes. Obviously, time goes on, our social situation changes. So the Billy Friedkin one, you have more people of color, you have all different things, but it's still pretty much the same thing, uh, even though it's changed, obviously, to keep up with, with the uh, current times. So it was, it was, I, it was obviously the 57 movie that I was mainly discussing, but I've been, I, I was referencing the others just talking about the differences in how the roles were approached. Uh, what a, well, what how, a, many, how, how many times have we heard that after a director casts, he's done 80% of his work? And it seems to me 12 Angry Men's a perfect example of you get those 12 actors in a room <laughs> and you just can sit back and watch the magic flow. Well, here's the thing. Here's the, uh, it, it's the way you do a commentary. You, you do a week usually or so of heavy research and then another week of preparation and performance. And for me, because I'm not Mr. Technical Genius, it's like, okay, we're going. And for the next hour and 45 minutes, I'm winging it. And it's like live TV. So I hope to God, you know, I'm going to misspeak here and there, but, you know, you just go with it. Uh, and even though you'd think, oh, God, I'm working on this thing. I'm just driving me crazy. I'm dreaming about it. That's, it's in my head and all that. I don't care. I'm looking at these guys and I'm going, you got to love Martin Balsam. You got to love Jack Warden. Each of them is so, it's like magic. And then you think about how often you've seen these guys over the years, always giving great performances. And you just sort of say, I'm so happy just to be able to appreciate them and celebrate them and discuss them. Uh, incredible. All right, so let, let's go around the table. Let's start with Martin. <laughs> let's start with Martin Balsam, who plays the foreman. What, what do we say about Martin? Martin Balsam is, Martin Balsam is, just look at Martin Balsam. That's all you have to do. I mean, <laughs> his look is just like an average guy you know, uh, no one that you'd see drawn in a comic book, you know, no one with perfect features, just Mr. Average. And, and what they did with him in this movie, because his original character really didn't have much of a personality in the TV version. The TV version was an hour. So the characters, while interesting, were more like thumbnails, obviously. Here was like an hour and 40 minutes, a little more time to get, to get into them. So they had to invent personality for Martin Balsam's character in a sense. So what do you do with Martin Balsam? You got all these other guys. You got one guy's a racist, another, you got all these other things that the other, what are you going to do now with him? So they decided, let's just make him an insecure guy, a guy who has some inherent insecurities. So at one point, uh, when Ed Bagley, who is the racist character, says, oh, we mean go around the table. We can always speak up anytime we want. Because Martin Balsam's the the guy who's in charge of the 12. He's the foreman. And, and he reacts by going, uh, oh, you want to do this job? 
well, maybe you think you could do a better job. Fine, fine. You know, and then the rest of them are saying, oh, no, 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 you're doing a great job. You know, meanwhile, he's still, yeah, I don't care what you guys do. Okay. And you can tell <laughs> by the way, you can tell this guy's got, and what is it? What, what does he talk about what he does? He's a coach for kids. Okay, player, because the kids aren't a threat to his adult mentality. They're kids. So that's perfect for him. So this is just a subtle little thing that's thrown in to give him something. But he's such a wonderful actor. Every time you see him, you're thinking about this a little. Uh, again, these people are just Oh, sure. Amazing. Now you go. Let's go to juror number two, John Fiedler. <laughs> oh, 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 another wonderful actor who has a voice like that, right? Uh, uh, he's interesting. He was also developed a good deal uh, from the original uh and and he um he was really supposed to be kind of more of a a, a wimpy character but john fielder gives it a kind of you like him you know and as you're watching i make a point of saying his face lights up when he thinks of an uh, of a thought he hadn't thought of before and and he's he's great for that uh so yeah no no he's no, we love John Feely. That high pitched voice of his is so memorable. And then, of course, you go. Meek. I was remembering how many of the 12 Angry Men were in Twilight Zone episodes? A lot of them. Oh, he, was, of them. he was a Knight of the Meek, and that was the one that he did. And Jack Klugman, I think, was in four time Meredith for as many, you know. I make a point of saying these guys not only did early TV, but man, they were in the Twilight Zone, most of them. <laughs> and then we come to Lee J. Cobb, who is such a force in that, and then has probably. Probably the strongest role other than Henry Fonda. Well, you know, he's the main, technically the Henry Fonda character. It was played by Robert Cummings originally. And Robert Cummings played it more like a real human being. No offense to Henry Fonda, but Robert Cummings, with his little kind of fey voice and his nervous kind of little thing, at the beginning, he's afraid almost to bring all this up to the other jurors. And as the story goes along, by the time the tic-tac-toe moment happens, when they're playing tic-tac-toe, they should be contract, and he grabs it and says, this isn't a game, he begins to come into his own. And it's, it's almost an arc. Whereas Henry Fonda is kind of, uh, as, as our director said, he's kind of a, a barometer of truth by which everyone else measures themselves. So that's not really a down-to-earth person. That's a larger-than-life person. So it's kind of interesting. Jack Lemmon eventually played that role in the William Friedkin. In the remake, version. of course. And he's a little closer to Cummings, a little more, little more down to earth. Not that I'm putting down Henry Fonda, but what Henry Fonda has to do, he's, he's brilliant. And he is the producer of the movie and was going to be the star. So director Sidney uh, 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 Lumet had to use that persona correctly. He couldn't ignore the fact that Henry Fonda inherently at that stage in his life was Mr. Roberts. He was kind of this, you know, kind of this force. So he used it so well. Uh, but it's fascinating to compare. Sure. To no, of course. Of yeah, course. But get back to Lee J. Cobb. Lee J. Cobb, the two adversaries of the Henry Fonda character, if you will. Juror number eight is, is the Henry Fonda, Robert Cummings guy, a Jack Lemmon guy. Uh, there are two adversaries. There's the intellectual adversary, uh, who's E.G. Marshall. Okay, who's the human computer kind of guy, the William F. Buckley kind of guy, if you know. <laughs> and the other adversary is the Lee J. Cobb character, who is just overpowering emotionally in the story. Uh, and Lee J. Cobb is Mr. Emotion. Uh, I mean, he had just done 
on the waterfront a couple of years before. So you know that voice is going to hit levels. Oh, Interesting sure. how George C. Scott played that role in the later version, the William Friedkin version. And so I said, great, yeah, they, they got another guy who yells really well. Oh, you know? sure. I mean, yeah, that's what that role is all about. And he's and he's great, you know. I mean, he's even though a lot of these actors have certain little gimmicks that we've come to recognize over the years and all that, it doesn't take away from the sheer talent that is there. And you're watching a movie like this as I've been examining it, and you just go, wow. He, he's in control of his of his tool, which is himself as an actor. Uh, and when you have to go crazy like that, the way he does, you have to be in control, otherwise you'll lose control. So yeah, he, he's great. Let's let's move along. <laughs> now, Jack, Jack Klugman, of course, has that marvelous moment where he's explaining how a person uses a knife, which I thought was terrific. Klugman, another another future Twilight Zoner, of course, and and another great face. I, I thought he was cool. just powerful in a low key. When we did the, and for the listeners, I actually worked on the remake of 12 Angry Men when Showtime did it. I was on that set every day and uh, the, um, the Jack Klugman character was played by a black actor, Dorian Harewood. Her and uh, who was very good. And then we come to Edward Binns, who perhaps is the most low key of the 12 in the original, but still a, a strong presence and, and a kind of a working man. And then when we did the remake, it was played by an unknown actor named James Gandolfini. <laughs> right. Very, very pre-Sopranos. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and that's a great character because he seems to be another one of these blue collar guys you know, and they set them all up that way at first. I mean, it didn't seem to be too different in a way from Jack Ward, and they come from a background of that. But no, he has a conscience. He's a smarter guy. And Binns was the perfect actor because Binns could, again, another Twilight Zone guy, right? Of course. Sure. And actually, uh, uh, played, and, right. Um... That was the episode where uh, they're on another planet, but they're really on Earth. And I think they see the telephone poles or something at the end. I shot yeah, a hero I, into the air. Yes, yes. So that's Edward, who was the captain who gets killed by Dewey Martin, I think, at some point. So, yeah, you know, you look deeply into it. The only one that wasn't, Robert Weber was not, who we'll get to, he's one of the jurors, uh, wasn't in a Twilight Zone. He was in everything else. He was in an Alfred Hitchcock. He was in Thriller. He was in The Outer Limits. But he didn't make it to Twilight Zone. No, it's true. Well, I'm wrong true. about that, but I double checked. And then we come to Jack Warden, who has always been one of my favorite actors and, and, and certainly was in one of my favorite Twilight Zone episodes where he plays the convict on the asteroid who gets the gift of the android. But in 12 Angry Men, he's the guy that has a couple of baseball tickets in his pocket and they seem to be burning a hole in it. He wants to get done with it. And boy, does Henry Fonda's juror number eight hand it to him. <laughs> no, oh, absolutely. Well, well, well. you, you know, uh, uh, actually, it's George Voskovec who really shames him. Because what happens is, eventually, Warden, just to get to that damn ball game, although I think it's rained out by then, uh, uh, changes his vote just to get out of there. You know, he was sticking, you know, guilty, guilty, enough. you know, non-guilty. Let's get the hell out of here. I've had enough. And George Voskovec, who's another juror, is going, what kind of a man are you? We're talking about saving somebody's life. You're talking about, you you, you can't do this, you know? Uh, and he's there doing his usual job. What, duh, what do you mean? You know, whatever. <laughs> you, want, you know, you want to hug every one of these guys because 
they were so perfect and they played off the, each other so beautifully. Uh, well, Joe, Joe Sweeney, Joe Sweeney, who uh, played the old man, uh, that, that whole sequence where he's talking about his vision and he points to his eyes. You see, I don't wear glasses. I've got 20-20. I love that moment. <laughs> Mr. Sweeney kind of almost steals the movie in a way. You talk about 12 fantastic performers. Each one of them is stealing the movie. But because Sweeney's character, the, the eldest of the group, this elderly man who's kind of being disrespected a little bit here and there, the fact that he's the one that that kind of figures out most of what we need to do. I mean, it's interesting because he's uh, well, he's juror number nine, because uh, number eight is Henry Fonda. And it's easy to remember that number nine uh, is the first one to be on his side. If it wasn't for number nine, if it wasn't for Sweeney, that would have been it. That would have been guilty right out of the gate there. But he gives him the time to turn things around. You know, I mentioned how Sweeney is so lovable in this. But if you ever see the man in the gray flannel suit, you'll get to see the evil Mr. Sweeney. Because in that character, exact opposite. He's, he's vicious and he's greedy and he's a monster. Uh, so if people only know him from 12 Angry Men, check out that movie just to see what an actor's range can give you. Wonderful, and, then, wonderful. and then we have Ed Begley, who's always been an, another amazing actor with an amazing face, plays juror number 10, who is the bigot. He is officially the bigot. And it's interesting to notice when he first starts spewing his racist hate pretty early on. It's kind of buried a little, but it's there. Um, although uh, it's so funny because uh, in the TV version, he, he, from the very first word, he's nasty. In this one, when Jack Klugman says, gee, I, I didn't realize they lock you in the jury room. Uh, Ed Bagley goes, yeah, yeah, they do with a friendly smile. So they tried to start him off a little bit better, but then in no time, he's, he's going on about, ah, oh, what do you expect from these people? That kind of thing. Gary, in the original, did his character have a cold as well? Yeah, the warm weather cold uh, 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 thing was pretty consistent yeah okay um yeah yeah and uh and i didn't we, notice to then, see if, if if robert cummings had a white suit the, uh, the director gave uh, henry fonder a white jacket and uh, some people have said what is he supposed to be a christ-like figure with his 12 disciples <laughs> you know what is he dudley the angel you know uh, 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 and it's true because he's larger than life my whole theory which i mentioned is that i think the director was winking and saying, I know he's larger than mine. This is my way of telling you that I know it. However, look how brilliantly he's being used, which is of course true. But anyway, yeah, moving right along. And then of course, George Voskovec uh, is juror number he's the old, He's the other one, along with Mr. Sweeney, that, was the, that returned from the TV version. The, TV the only two actors that were invited to be in, in the film version. Um, uh, Francha Tone, plays the Lee J. Cobb character in the original. And the ending is very different. The way the movie ends is this very, because it became kind of a movie about something so noble, almost like a public service this movie was. It was this, this magnificent thing. In the original version, when the Franchot Tone slash Lee J. Cobb character 
is overwhelmed by his other jury mates, he just gets mad and turns around and says, all right, all right, all right, all right. There's no breakdown with him and the child. It's mentioned early. He mentions early, ah, oh, kids, I had a son and I, whatever, ah, you know, whatever. But it doesn't hit you at the end the way the movie version does, which is a little on the nose, okay? It che- In the TV version, there's actually the threat of potential violence. As they leave, he gives number eight back his knife, which number eight brought in, Henry Fonda, Robin Cummings, and it looks like he may stab him with it. And he gives him a look as if to say, I, I hate you. And we don't know if he hates him because he just kind of won and made him lose and it's just a primal, you know, or if he's saying, you let a guilty person free and I hate you for not only thwarting me, but, but brainwashing everybody else. Keep in mind the majority of legal professionals consider that verdict to be wrong. That, that, that it, there should have been a guilty. This is one of the things that amazed me when I did research. Uh, uh, famous uh, uh, lawyers and, and even on the Supreme Court who love the movie, consider it so important, they advise young lawyers, whatever, don't use this as an example of how to do it because this is all speculation. This is not how you do it. So it's quite fascinating when, when you, when the document, when the um, commentary comes out, when the thing comes out, I'll go into detail specifically about what, now I always knew that bit with the knife that he brings in because Henry Fonda brings in another, just to prove that the knife they're talking about, there's a million of these knives out there. That would have been a mistrial. Instantly, that would have been the end of it. <laughs> but, you know, we, we go with it because what it's saying is so noble that we have to think. We, we, we have to think things out. We, we can't just, particularly in a life and death situation, you are morally obligated to, to look at every nook and cranny here. Uh, and if you don't, you're not a decent human being. Well, it you know it's it's a brilliant film, and and this conversation has been great, Gary. Oh, um, it probably I, went on longer than we should have. I'm sorry. No, I know, but there's so I, much I, to I, talk I about. I tend to go on and on and on. We, we could tell. I'm gonna I'm gonna bring you back because we're gonna find another movie to talk about that we love. Because <laughs> I could see the raw emotion that you bring out when you love something as much as oh, yeah. I love something, and it's always fun talking to you. Um, Thank you. This has been great. A lot of fun. We've been listening to Gary Girani talking about various aspects of his his life and continued projects. Um, we wish you a lot of luck and Happy New Year, everybody. Uh, you've been listening to Saturday Night at the Movies. And I'm Steve Rubin, your host, and Ben Shrewsbury is our producer. And thank you for listening. Gary, thank you. And you have a Happy New Year as well. Thank you. Same to you. And it was my real pleasure to do this. I had a lot of fun.